Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. My sermon today is entitled, Too Close to Home. Too Close to Home. Pastor Search Committee and I stood in the cavernous sanctuary. In its heyday, this New Orleans church had 1,200 members after it had been in existence for about 15 years. It went from a plant to to 1,200 members. Sanctuary seated about 150. The three-story education building next door had an indoor basketball court. By 1990, however, when I arrived to interview there, the Sunday school building served one child. And that huge sanctuary had 75. As I was looking around, I just mused aloud. I said, well, you know, the principle is you want to fill your space. So that means you need to pull folks together. I mean, they were rolling around. They were on Sunday, they were rolling around, as we say, like peas in a bucket. I said, so you need to bring your people closer together to create at least some sense of intimacy. So I looked up and looked around. I said, well, you know, one thing you could do is put up folding screens to close off the back of the sanctuary up under the balcony and move folks forward so that they'll be closer together. At that, the committee chair, search committee chair, exclaimed, Pastor, we can't do that. No. He said, All those pews were paid for by donors, and they all have dedication plaques. Let that sink in. Practically every church has at least one plaque somewhere listing the officers or the trustees or the donors who spearheaded, oh, the new sanctuary, or maybe the fellowship hall, or the organ, or something. Classrooms are named for teachers who were there 40 years ago. Conference rooms or fellowship halls might be named for former pastors. And some churches, like that one in New Orleans, had the names of honorees, donors, or memorials literally on everything, even different dedications written in every hymnal in the pews. The welcome brochures of most churches that they hand out to new visitors will list the committees who built the sanctuary, the names of the committee members that built the sanctuary in 1927, and the trustees who 
bought the land for the fellowship hall in 1953, as if anybody really cared nowadays who was on some church board 70 years ago. The sad thing, you know, a passing gesture of appreciation becomes a personal vanity, and then it passes into the history of that church forever. And what's really sad about that is how many churches, think about it, how many churches have experienced so little of God and done so little for the kingdom of God that they actually think that those lists of names are the most important thing they have to introduce themselves to visitors. Isn't that sad? If that's all you have to say about yourself is who was on the board to do this or build that instead of how many souls have come to Christ and how many hungry have been fed. So as we study Nehemiah, today we arrive at a list of names. So what on earth or in heaven are we to do with this? Well, let's first, by way of review, some of you might be joining us for the first time, or like me, you may not remember what it was, uh, what we talked about last week. So by way of review, Jerusalem was still in ruins after a century and a half. The walls were pulled down in battle, others sagged through neglect eroded by weather, split by roots, plundered for building materials, whatever. And when he hears of it, Nehemiah, bodyguard to the king of Persia, is moved, prays and fasts for four months till God miraculously opens the way for him to lead the effort to rebuild the city of God. Now, rebuilding the city of God is a lot like renewing the church, the spiritual city of God. The principles are largely the same. Both involve prayer and faith, dignity and hope, personal investment and involvement. Both face resistance and obstacles. And both reveal a lot about our true priorities. Nehemiah kept a record of his progress in a diary. He arrived, made connections, he kept quiet, listened, until he could slip out unobserved to survey the walls and the gates. And only then, when he had assessed both the construction needs and the will and spirit of the people, does he raise the subject. And in doing so, he reminds everyone of God's covenant faithfulness. And he told the miracles God had already done to get him to this point. And he voices his confidence 
that they really could do this because God is going to help them do it. And the people, once dispirited, rally enthusiastically. We can do this. Let's do this. So let's read what happens next in Nehemiah chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter 3. It is long, but please bear with me. And I'm going to have to wet the whistle before I tackle this one. Nehemiah 3. Then the high priest, Eliashib, set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him. And next to them, Zakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasena built the fish gate. They laid its beams, set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Meremoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakots, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berakiah, son of Meshetzabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, son of Baana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Jehoiada, son of Pasea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams, set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Repairs were made by Melatia the Gibeonite and Jadon the Meronotite, that is, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah, who were under the jurisdiction of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Utziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. And next to them, Jediah, son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, son of Hashabneah, made repairs. Malkiah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. And next to him, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of half, meaning the other half, the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Tsanoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it, set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, son of Kolhotze, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. 
He rebuilt it and covered it and set up its doors, its bolt, and, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Arbutz, uh, excuse me, Arbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsur, repaired from a point opposite the graves of David as far as the artificial pool in the house of the warriors. After him, the Levites made repairs, Reum, son of Bani, and next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. And after him, their kin made repairs, Binui, son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah, and next to him, Ezer, son of Yeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabai, repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest, Eliashib. After him, Meramoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakotz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area made repairs. Now after them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. And after them, Atzariah, son of Maseah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his own house. And after him, Binui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Atzariah to the angle and to the corner. Palal, son of Utsai, repaired opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. And after him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel made repairs to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel, and above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And after him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. And after him, Meshulam, son of Berakiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. And after him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants, servants and of the merchants, opposite the mustard gate, and to the upper room of the corner. And between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Believe it or not, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most readers usually jump over this section. They kind of hop over it to get into something that's more immediately edifying. But we can learn a lot from this seemingly very dry 
and uninspiring list. Now, first you have to wonder, is this portion of Nehemiah's journal another one of those lists of names and trustees and donors like the dozens of little brass dedicatory plaques on the ends of each and every pew there in New Orleans? A token of honor for every person's contribution once meant to stroke their vanity, but it became petrified in the church's history. Except that this was an actual work list. It's an actual work list. Nehemiah's diary is not just a personal journal, but it was created to form the, the basis for a formal report on his mission, which he would be, of course, required to submit to the king of Persia when he was done. At this point, he is assigning which work details will be responsible for which part of the task. And he names them so that they might perhaps receive royal commendations, and he, by the way, also names the ones who interfere or who refuse to cooperate so the king will know them too. And we can learn a lot from this. Nehemiah proceeds very methodically. You may have noticed that. The rebuilding of the the rebuilding efforts on the walls and the gates is divided into small, doable sections. Now, by a completely approximate, unscientific count on my part, I come up with 40 sections, 40 assignments. No, don't go sitting through my whole sermon counting them to see if you come up with 42. Just, it's going to be somewhere around 40. <coughs> Pardon me. And the building assignments are listed section by section, and it starts in the sheep gate up on the north end, and then it proceeds, as you would see it, counterclockwise around the city until you get back around to the sheep gate up in the north. And already here, there is an important principle for leadership and church renewal. And it's this, identify a big job, divide it into a series of manageable tasks, and then farm them out to as many different volunteers as possible. You notice they do not hire any staff to do this. Do I hear more amens than that? They don't hire staff to do it. They farm it out to as many volunteers as they can possibly find. Why? Because you want people involved in it, and you want people invested in it. Nehemiah names a lot of people, and he hints at their different motives and levels of involvement. And what we want to look at this, at this morning is who is rebuilding the city of God? And why? One, first, for many of these workers, 
we know only their names. There's Zakur ben Imri. There's Zadok ben Boana. There's Yoida. There's the sons of Hasena who rebuild the fish gate and others and more and more. A few of them, four of them I think, Meshulam and Meramot and Hashub and Binui ben Henadad are ambitious and they each redo two sections. We do know that some of them, like uh, Meshulam and Hashub, lived in town. And some we know did not. They came from outside. We really don't know anything else about these folks. And they have, for us, no faces. And there are some that are only part of this or that group. There are some that are part of the goldsmiths, or they're part of the perfumers, or they're part of the men of Tekoa, or whatever. We don't even know their names. You see, we're all workmen building the city of God. Our Jerusalem is right here at KPC, the place where God is worshipped and exercises his sovereignty. But the walls have been torn down, the gates burned, the protections have been compromised, the boundaries fuzzy, the population dispersed. It lacks identity, definition, organization, discipline, structure, and purpose. It's time to rebuild, to renew, to grow this church. But like Jerusalem of old, a lot of the work is anonymous, faceless, sometimes even nameless, and often thankless. We do it because it needs to be done. Because God has put it on our heart to do it. And not for public recognition or brass plaques, but alone, we do it for God. Two, secondly, some workers represent various trade guilds and civic clubs. Two of them are goldsmiths. One is a perfumer. One leads the temple servants guild. One section is restored generally by the goldsmiths and the merchants. You know, call it the chamber of commerce, you know. People, and this is this principle here, people get personally involved and then enlist their already existing circles and special interest groups. You get involved and you bring your group with you. So draw upon the circles and the networks you already have, beginning within the church. Not, and that's, by the way, not just the women's circle or the deacons. We tend to fall back a lot on the women's circle and the deacons, which is fine, but it's not just for them. You've got choirs, Sunday school classes, home cell groups, men's breakfast, older adult groups, committees, ministry teams, 
on and on, all of the existing circles, even the ones that are not official but exist anyway, <clears throat> even just circles of friends beginning within the church, can become forces for renewal and revitalization. Each can be a place where prayer, faith, sharing, mission, stewardship, action, and evangelism happen. I mean, just imagine you get with a half dozen friends and say, hey, let's go down to the mall and hand out Bibles and tell people about Jesus and invite them to KPC. Why? Well, because it's, the Lord's put it on my heart, and I want to see our church grow. That's what we're talking about. Each group, whatever it is, can tackle a particular problem or issue and think it through together in creative ways and then forge doable action plans to put, and that they can pass on to the leadership. They can either do it and contribute or they can pass it to the leadership just to, so they can sort of help get some help coordinating it with what everybody else is doing so you're not all fighting for the same rooms at the same time. In, you see, in a healthy church, all of the ministry, fellowship, service, and outreach are carried not by the pastor or the church board, but by the loosely overlapping networks and circles and interest groups that exist among the members. That's who does the work. That's who carries the mission. That's who brings people to Jesus. And the more diverse circles and group leaders that are actively involved, the healthier the church will be and the more growth it will see. You can tie into your other networks, work, clubs, professional associations, and so on. You'll find Christians here and there all over the place who are glad to help out in some way with any church, as well as people who might themselves be looking for a, a real church home or maybe have no church affiliation at all. You see, 80% of church growth comes through inviting and involving people you already know. Third, three, church groups come on mission trips to help, like the men of Jericho and the men of Tekoa who repair two sections. You've got work crews arriving from Gibeon, from Mitzpah and Sanoa. Some priests from the outlying areas band together to come in and help. You see, outsiders, the principle here, our third principle, outsiders were welcomed and allowed to help build. You should not have to do it all. <clears throat> There are lots of people out there who want to come and be a part of what God's doing, who will bring energy, enthusiasm, and maybe some fresh ideas. Bring in lay renewal teams, experts with specialized knowledge and 
experience or expertise, some of the most significant fresh impulses in the life of this church have been sparked through speakers and workshops from outside, right? I've had many of you tell, oh, I remember when so-and-so came, and boy, that just lit a fire under us. When outside, you welcome outsiders and let them build with you, especially if they aren't from here. Four. So fourth, various politicians and civic leaders bring crews. Raphael, ruler of half of Jerusalem, takes on one part of the wall and not to be outdone. Shalom, who's ruler of the other half of the city, brings along even his daughters to help. The mayors of Beth HaKarem and Beth Zur each head up teams. So do the co-mayors of Keilah. The mayor of Mitzpah tackles one section, brings his city manager to oversee construction on another part. You see, not all civic leaders are, of course, so mission-minded. While the men of Tekoa worked really hard, their princes would not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. You see, some leaders will help and some won't. Okay. It is highly unlikely that the mayor of Virginia Beach or of Norfolk might want to come and help revitalize KPC. You can pray for them, okay? But they probably won't come. You never know. For example, if you want to rekindle additional interest in a class, say, on on current affairs, You get local politicians to come in and talk about any issues coming up on their legislative agendas that might impact religious faith or church life. And I don't just mean candidates who already agree with you. That's what we tend, all churches, that's what we tend to do. If we bring in anybody, we bring in people who agree with us. But I have found I learn the most from people I disagree with because it forces me to stop and think about why I disagree with them. And I learn more from that. And it expands my understanding a whole lot more than just hearing folks who tell me what I already think. Do I hear an amen on that? Isn't that true? So bring in the people from outside the circle, bring in the people you really don't like, but give them a fair hearing so that you can then sit down and think about what is it that I just, that just rankles me here, why it may not be what you assume it is. At least you'll know what's coming down the pike. And I suspect what you'll find in your class or your group is that interest in attendance is going to soar even if they don't, if they're not telling you what you'd like to hear. So your church and your civic leaders, the ones you like and the ones you don't, might in be a leading role, not always. Regardless, the, the point simply is the more diverse people you have 
contributing to the whole ferment, the more people you have bringing ideas, making decisions, and sharing leadership, the more this church and every church will thrive. Five. So fifth, the pastor and the ministerial staff get involved. But you know, I want you to notice they're not doing or managing everything. This is actually kind of funny. The high priest, Eliashib, organizes his priests to rebuild the sheep gate. Now that's important, the sheep gate, because the sheep gate was a special gate where the sacrificial animals were brought in. And so the, the, the priest, uh, Eliashib and the priest get involved to rebuild the sheep gate in order to ensure the smooth operation of the temple and the sacrificial system and the worship service. They're focusing on the worship service and everything you need to keep the worship service going. And not only do they rebuild the sheep gate, then we're told they consecrated it. That is, they held a series of special worship services to dedicate it. You know, just what you would expect a bunch of preachers to do. All the whole, the whole wall gets dedicated at one time together, but this is a special section, and it's the only section that gets consecrated separately from all the others. That's what preachers are going to do. But then you got to wonder, you know, they are, after all, preachers and not masons. Maybe they figure their masonry work might really need some extra prayer. I don't know. So while Pastor Eliashib is busy working up in the north of the city, fixing the sheep gate, Merimoth, that we hear about a couple of times, takes on the section of wall in the south across town alongside Eliashib's house. Now, normally Eliashib would be responsible for the part touching his own property. But here, someone else steps in and assumes some of the pastor's less urgent duties so he can focus on his calling and his area of expertise. See, Merrimoth has already fixed one section of the wall uh, over by the fish gate. He'd already done his part. He could have just, okay, finished, done my part. But he doesn't. He takes on an extra commitment to help the church by shouldering some of the pastor's less urgent duties, shouldering some of his burden, so the pastor can be free to do what he must do and what he can do best for the whole church. So, what we see is the minister and the staff of religious professionals do their part, but not all of the work. So here's your principle. Let your pastor do what he or she is good at, 
what no one else is trained or authorized to do. But most of the work of renewing the church should and must be done by the congregation. That's the way God has intended it. In fact, you, do, you really, really, really do not want the health or the growth of the church to depend too much upon the charisma or the vision or the energy of the pastor. Churches that rely too much on their pastor's personal engagement and involvement effectively, and this has been researched and studied and it holds true again and again, and I've seen it in practice again and again, when they rely too much on their pastor, especially one pastor, they limit their potential growth to a maximum of around 250 in worship. That's about the size of congregation that one pastor can effectively lead if he or she is in the middle of the network and, man and sort of handling everything, managing everything. You don't want that. It's, if you want to grow any bigger than that, if you want to get back some of where you were, you're going to need not just you know, one or two more pastors, you're going to need a whole lot of engaged lay leaders. That's what makes a church grow. I'll talk about that some, in a few weeks again. But you want, this is the body of Christ where every member has a task and makes a difference. That's what you want. That's what God wants. That's what Jesus died to create. Six, I was going to hold up one hand, I can't do that, six. Six, I want you to notice how many of them have a personal investment in the work. It's too close to home, and that's quite literally. Jediah makes repairs opposite his house. Did you all notice that, how often it said that? Jediah makes repairs opposite his house. Brothers Benjamin and Hasub fix the wall across from their house. Azariah repairs the section beside his home. Zadok restores the section by his home. Meshulam fixes the part near his apartment. The temple servants who live on Ophel tackle that part of the wall. The priests who live above the horse gate, that's just a little uphill from the horse gate, team up to repair the section bordering their properties. Shemaiah, the gatekeeper, who would actually live in the gate tower, personally repairs the east gate where he's going to be living. You see, they live there. It's their home. It's their neighborhood. This is their protection. It's their pride. They want to see it gets done right. So, our principle Look for things that need to get done where you have a personal interest, a personal stake in it, because then you're going to do your best and it's going to be done to the best standards. If something bothers you, if you don't like the way something is being done, if you're dissatisfied with it, don't you dare complain. 
Do I have to repeat that? Don't you dare complain. Well, preacher, what should, are we supposed to do if we don't like it? Well, I'll tell you what, you get involved. You volunteer to help do it. Or you ask to be put in charge of it. And instead of being negative complaining, we become proactive builders in the city of God. Seventh. So seventh, there's poor Machija. Machija. He is assigned to the dung gate. Think manure. That's where folks have been hauling out the animal and the human waste literally for centuries. For centuries. Just imagine it. No, don't. Don't. Rebuild the dung gate. Somebody's got to do it, but it's dirty, it's smelly. And it's just plain nasty work. So did they assign it then to the lowest man on the totem pole? You know, the the one with the least seniority who just was not in any position to refuse? No, they don't. Malkijah is ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem. He's a relatively prosperous and respected civic leader, and he brings some of his boys with him. But nothing, I'm sure, I'm sure the guy, okay, you know, guys, they're going to make jokes about it. They're going to have, while they're sitting there working, they're going to say, oh, here's a, here's a good one, here's a smelly one. Oh, I'll let you clean up this part. Oh, you know, I'm sure they made jokes about it. But nothing in Nehemiah's diary suggests that he or his work crew were disappointed or resentful about their assignment. And that takes commitment. And it takes a servant's heart. So it won't all be glamorous. Some work in rebuilding the church is boring. Some of it's even yucky. But it's just as important as the more enviable tasks. Our principle, God is looking for those who have the heart of a servant, who were honored to be called to share in God's work no matter what it might be. While other people might not appreciate or even really notice your contribution, and you probably won't get your name on a bronze plaque, know that God sees it. God appreciates it, and God remembers it forever.
Now, in this whole chapter, Nehemiah, you may have noticed, Nehemiah does not really even mention God, except once when he refers to the people who won't shoulder their burden and be part of the work of their Lord. But you see, God stirred their hearts. They know this. We know this, having read it. God is the one who stirred up their hearts. God opened the doors. God provided materials and skill. God is faithful to his covenant. He will not forsake his church. And sometimes we might see only what man is doing. It's on the surface of things. But rest assured that behind it all, God is the one at work in and through his people, in and through you and me, to renew the church for which Jesus died and rose again. So while you might be the one doing this or that, He's the one standing behind you, inspiring you, moving you, helping you, helping you, guiding you to completion, and he is the one who really gets the glory. The only name that belongs on any plaque is his. So this is your community, this is your church, this is your piece of the city of God. It's where you live and worship. So do whatever you can, where you can, whatever God is putting on your heart, don't leave it to others to build. Because, you see, it's just too close to home. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the one behind all that we purpose and accomplish. Many many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the will of the Lord that will be done. So, Lord, be our motive and our inspiration, be our guidance, our challenge. And we pray together, enjoying that you will build up this. And for those who are from other churches or those watching from other churches, Lord, we join in praying that you'll use them to build up their church, that every outpost of the city of God will be a place that brings glory and honor to our Lord, the one we serve, and that all of us will put our hands to the work, whatever it is you lay upon us, to do it with humility and with appreciation and with thankfulness that we are allowed to do and contribute anything at all. And may you get the glory through the name and the work, the dying and the rising again, and and through the church of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.